You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Indianapolis Star sports columnist, award-winning sports columnist, Greg Doyle. Mr. Doyle, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Robert, thanks for inviting me. It's about time. Well, I usually just see you beating the living hell out of a bag at the gym in Southport. Uh, the bag is literally a heavy bag, right? I'm not beating the living hell out of a person you're describing. <laughs> I didn't say an old bag. Just a bag. Just a bag, right? Although, did you ever see me uh, chasing around that bodybuilder in the in the racquetball court? Were you playing racquetball? Because that's usually where I am. No, I was. We were sparring in the racquetball court, and I was chasing him around because he didn't really want to hit back. Well, you know, if you're not playing racquetball, why the hell are you in the racquetball courts? Because we we wanted to spar, and uh, <laughs> he took me. He wanted to go. He thought it would make sense to go in the racquetball court, so we go in the racquetball court. And I mean, he's a big dude. But he, you know, either you either you like to fight and you like to get hit, as stupid as that sounds, or you don't. And he doesn't really like it. So, anyway, so Mike Tyson is correct, huh? So Mike Tyson is correct that everyone has a plan until you get hit in the face. Yeah, I I, always, I just have wondered if it because it must have looked like a little rat terrier chasing a dog, <laughs> and I'm the rat terrier <laughs> in that scenario. I just wondered who, who ever saw that. Was boxing your first sports love? No, but it might be my most intense sports love. I didn't take up boxing until I was about 35 years old. And um, I had laser eye surgery when I had a radio show in, in Cincinnati. And somebody was, they were giving away laser eye surgery to a couple hosts if you wanted to do it. And so I did it. Um, turns out I could have, I could have boxed without laser eye surgery. I didn't realize you didn't need, you didn't need to see that well. Cause once you're in the ring, you're, you know, you can see them. 
anyway, I got laser eye surgery. And as soon as it healed, I thought this is my time. So I, I started boxing and it, it coincided with my, with my falling in love with the UFC. And uh, one time I, I, you know, I went to a UFC event to watch it and to rip it. And literally that night fell in love with the sport and wrote about, wrote a love story that night to the UFC. And then I saw guys getting choked out. And I always thought as a kid growing up watching pro wrestling, like this looks fake. I, I don't understand why they're tapping out. So I went to a UFC gym that had Rich Franklin, who was the time a middleweight champion. And there's, it was in Cincinnati. And I asked the jujitsu guy, George Gurgel, if he would choke me out. Cause I want to know what it feels like. And so he choked me out and I saw what it felt like. And, uh, it all kind of, I joined that gym, started boxing and there you go. So when I used to go to the convention center in the mid seventies here in Indianapolis and watch Dick, the bruiser and Ernie, the big cat lad and Andre, the giant and Ox Baker and the Sheik and, and Wilbur Snyder, the world's most scientific wrestler. You're telling me now that wasn't real. I think Ox Baker might've been real. He had a bunch of scars in his face. He was in escape from New York. See that? Oh yeah, that's right. With Ernie, Kurt, the big cat lad who was a pro football Ernie, player. He was, he was. And, uh, um, who's the first name you mentioned on that list? Probably Dick, the bruiser. I would guess who, Dick was, the a pro bruiser, who was a great athlete, a great, I mean, obviously that's, great athletes become pro wrestlers and vice versa, I guess. You know, I tell, I should do a podcast on Indianapolis pro wrestling in the seventies, because when I was a kid, I was born in 67. The only thing there was to do downtown for per, for a family of limited means was to go to pro wrestling. I mean, you had the Pacers obviously, but not until 74 or so when they built market square arena, but pro wrestling was huge in Indianapolis during that time. And, Honestly, there was nothing else to do. I never remember coming down and going to eat first and then going to watch pro wrestling because there was no place to go. Pro wrestling was was like everything else people our age say. It was better back then. It was it was so much less. I mean, today it's it's purely truly entertainment. I mean, it's uh you're watching a reality TV show, you're watching a Cirque de Soleil, you know, you're watching a circus. It's uh <laughs> it's, it's if you're into that, okay, but when you and I were growing up, I mean, it was just a bunch of ugly people beating the hell out of each other. And you weren't sure if it was real or not over time, you figured it out, but it was just more raw. I, now it's all choreographed. It looks like an Olympic sport now, like synchronized wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I remember standing uh, by the, the rope for lack of a better term. I, I mean, I probably was 11, 12, maybe late seventies. And Andre, the giant walked right past me. And you look up and you're just like, this is the biggest thing in the entire universe. And pro wrestling was different then. I agree with you. It was better. But something else, to go back to our first kind of string of questions, was better then. And it's just, it's hard to fathom how much it has died or diminished, lessened. And that's boxing. In the 70s and 80s, boxing was gigantic, whether it was pay-per-view or wide world of sports or however you watched it. And the list of legends from that time period is almost is certainly too long to go into on this podcast. What, what happened to boxing? Well, what happens to a lot of things is too many people with money got involved in there. I mean, I don't know if this is what happened to it, but I do know there are so many organizations now that have belts and over the years have had belts. Eventually, you run out of it. it just WBO, W, what, what is what IBC, IBF? <laughs> it's hard to know what matters, what doesn't matter. And so 
and then and then things get our attention elsewhere. I mean, the UFC kind of was the death was the the last nail in the coffin of boxing because now you can like a box a great boxing fight, a great one that's going to be on pay per view. Odds are it's going to go the distance because if they're both that good, it's going to go twelve rounds, and it's kind of hard to get excited about watching an hour of boxing and no one's no one's even going to seem rocked. Whereas the UFC, you can't take your eye off it because any second it's over. Boxing, you can take a round off and come back and it's it's the next round. But UFC, you can't you can't even look away. That's what's so great about it. You know, the NFL used to. And we're going to try to cover a lot of sports here and a lot of your your writings and your history. The NFL used to market the brutality of the game, whether it was Dick Buckus highlights or, you know, they'd have NFL collision course or crash course. That was their videotapes and stuff that they used to market and sell. They obviously don't do that anymore. But it seems like the UFC has filled that gap, that that human need to or or thirst, hunger to watch brutality. Is that? Am I onto something or is that one of the reasons it's popular or is it to your point, perhaps the finality, it's so fast. You got to watch it or it's over. Uh, you're probably onto something with a lot of people. Yeah. It, Cause it is brutal and it can be brutal. It's, it's really, if you grow up watching boxing and a guy gets knocked down, you know, the, you, you let him up and the referee has to make sure he's okay before the fight be, keeps going. And UFC, you knock a guy down and you fall him to the, to the canvas and you beat the hell out of him until the referee pulls you off him. It's, and, and when you describe it that way, and if someone's hearing it that way, it sounds barbaric. And it's at, at times it can be. Um, that's why I went there to rip it in 2007, I think it was. It was, I believe it was UFC 70 at Columbus. And ironically, I, Chris Lytle was on that card, uh, pretty sure. And I ended up sparring with Chris Lytle several, several times over the years. But anyway, I went there to rip the sport because it's so barbaric. But when I saw the camaraderie, between the fighters and every now and then there's two that don't get along, but the camaraderie, especially after the fight, because fighting's always scared me. Just like it always terrified me. I'd hate to be in a fight. I saw a couple of fights in middle school when I was growing up and it scared me just irrationally. Like what if someone pushes me into the ring and now I've got to go, you know, right. bullies. It just terrified me. And it's always scared me. And then I go to the UFC 70 and uh, the camaraderie, I realized this is, this is like football only without, you know, it's, it's like basketball. It's a competition. That's all it is. They're not mad. And then I fell in love with it. And now, of course, now that I do it, fighting doesn't scare me at all because I see it as it's a sport. Do you, let me answer this question a different way. What is your take or attitude or feeling when it's women in the ring? Oh, same, same. I, I've never, uh, I mean, the first time you hear about it going back eight or 10 years, it's like, really, is this going to happen? I mean, it's just kind of a shock to even hear about it and think about it. But then once you watch, once I watched a fight, oh, okay, I see. They're just, they're just like men fighting. They're just with, you know, different bodies, but I got no problem with, I mean, beyond no problem with it. It's, it's a competition. It's sport. It's, it's beautiful to watch. It's all, it's all great. You know, it's, and some women are more viscerally violent than others, um, or they have more power in their hands. And so sometimes it's a little bit shocked because they don't, they don't all carry the same power. Um, anyway, I, I've got no problem with it. And I find it really ironic and, funny and typical that Dana White used to hate, hate the idea of women fighting, hated it. And then he saw how much money he can make off Ronda Rousey. And then he, you know, he's a huge proponent. So money changes the way a lot of people think about things like that. As far as I'm concerned, I just, you know, the first time you watch a women's fight, you realize, Oh my gosh, this is, this is awesome. So it's, it's all awesome. The whole thing, 
awesome. Camaraderie, sporting, it's all great. You think a man and a woman will ever get into the octagon together? I hope not. Um, I hope not. Because first of all, if you're the man, you can't win. I mean, you you can win, but winning doesn't. You're, you're supposed to win, if theoretically. Listen, men and women are they have different bodies, they have different ge- different genetics, different strengths, different weaknesses. Um, but no, there's. I, I would hope we see that ever. I don't want to see that, and I don't think we'll ever see that. I mean, you, any place that ever does that is a place that is that will go out of business quickly because they're clearly run by idiots. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, if you had, I mean, I'm going to make up something super bantam weight where you're talking 120 pound man against quote unquote heavyweight woman who is 160, 165. I mean, if you could equalize it that way, I could see maybe how someone would, I mean, much like they equalized the, 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 Billy Jean King, Bobby Riggs match in the seventies by the fact that he was what, 40 years older than she was 30 some. I mean, it seems to me to your point about money. And now you see how the NFL and UFC uh, market to women to be spectators, to buy jerseys and participate in all that sort of thing. Money changes everything. Yeah. There's just different, you know, the, the twitching of the muscles are just, it would be, it would be awful. I couldn't, I wouldn't, so couldn't watch it and uh, wouldn't even want to rip it because I wouldn't want to give it any attention. You know, that is so offensive to me. The idea of it, that <laughs> even lower myself to, to attack it because that would just give it, you know, I want, I would want my name nowhere near that event. And it'll, I don't think it'll ever happen, but you would spar with like a friend of Rousey goes, let's just spar and hit around and have fun. You know? Oh, I, thing. back when I used to box a lot, I sparred with, with women all the time. You spar, you know, you, eight or 10 or 12 of us would go on sparring night and you you'd just take turns getting in there with whoever. And the thing about sparring um, and, and boxing in general, one, one of the great, great things about it is whoever's better, whoever's better. It's understood if you're actually, if you're you know really into it, it's understood that the better person will only go as hard as the lesser person, maybe plus 1%. So, you, you know, you don't just let them tee off on you. So mm-hmm. part of women that I was better than that. And so, you know, you, you honor that. And I've sparred with, with, I remember one woman was better than me and she, she honored, she honored that by not uh, beating the hell out of me. Um, what's hard is I telling you earlier about that bodybuilder dude I was sparring with. And if he's listening, that's a little bit embarrassing, but um, whoever's better has to, like I said, you, you don't take advantage of that. I'm sparring with this guy and I'm, and I'm better than him, but he won't, he doesn't even want to like mix it up. He wants to spar, but he, he's kind of afraid. So I've got to chase him. Or, literally I'm chasing him around the racquetball court but then I can't tee off on him once I get within range because I'm better. You know, you're, you're supposed to, anyway, it was very awkward. So when you chase someone around who don't want to fight, you actually kind of get hit in the face more than you ought to because <laughs> right into stuff because anyway, very frustrating. Women don't do that. The women I've sparred with, you don't chase them around. <laughs> they know, you know, right where to find them and they're going to punch you. In the face. If you could have covered any boxing match in history, as a columnist or a reporter, which one would you choose? Well, only thing, whatever popped right in my head just now is uh, Mike Tyson biting Evander Holyfield's ear off. That's uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty bad, but that's pretty good. I you know I like to write about emotions and uh, scene and just crazy passion and, and all that. And that fight had all of that. So I guess that'd be the one. It seems that Holyfield was the one person who just wasn't scared of Tyson. Uh, well, then punctured his aura of, of 
invincibility because after that, well, Buster Buster Douglas too, but very strange. Tyson was you can be the greatest ever and then kind of fall off a cliff. And uh, Tiger Woods had a stretch there where he was the greatest ever. I mean, he sure. was. You could look at the numbers and over time and this and that and say whatever you want, but for about five or six or eight years, there was nobody had a five or six or eight year stretch like Tiger Woods. I don't think. And even if somebody did, Ben Hogan, whatever, back in the day, the competition just wasn't the same. So, anyway, Mike Tyson had a stretch there. He was the greatest of all time. He's not going to go down clearly as the greatest of all time, but he had a stretch there where he was the boxer of all time. You're talking with Indianapolis star sports columnist Greg Doyle, award-winning. He's won three Associated Press Sports Columnist Awards. He was born in Hawaii. My research showed. How did you? What? How did that come about? Someone's been on Wikipedia. Um, we we do we we employ a team of researchers here at the oh, Leaders and Legends see. podcast. From the Bob and Tom show, you got their researchers. <laughs> I know you got their everything else over there. Um, that was a not a, that was a disrespectful shot at Bob and Tom. I'm not that stupid. Anyway, um, so. My dad was in Vietnam and he was stationed in Hawaii from 68 to 70, 69, 71, something like that. And from there he went to Vietnam. And so anyway, we were stationed there when I was born. So I lived there. Actually, I guess we we're stationed there through 72 because I lived there two years and it's the only two years I've ever been in Hawaii. And so I've never, I have zero, you know, I, was, I lived there two years. I have zero memories of it. And because I'm not hugely into travel and things like that, I've, that's probably the last two years I'll ever spend in Hawaii, and that's fine. What was it like to – what were the sports like when you were at the University of Florida? Did you bump up against the Emmett Smith years, or uh, they had a pretty good basketball team in the late 80s? What was that big giant center, white guy? Dwayne Shintzius. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah, that your era? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And actually, I ripped Emmett Smith in a story once and um, got raised <laughs> to her up there. Um, Cause he, he was in some celebrity or something golf tournament, college, sophomore, college, junior, and was just being a really jerk on the course. And uh, just my sense of right and wrong is you don't like, he was blowing off people that were saying hi to him and just, I don't know. It's not who Emma Smith became, you know, he, he was a really a gentleman for the Cowboys I and mean, he was 19 years old. So it wasn't his finest moment, probably wasn't my finest moment to go after him, but, but, Anyway, so yeah, I've I've always gone after people, uh, even back then. But um, Florida basketball was a was a train wreck. It was it was scummy. Norm Sloan got him in trouble. Yeah, Norm Sloan. Yeah, that's right. Who won Florida a national championship won. at North Carolina State? Beat yeah. uh, UCLA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Thompson. Um, and however David Thompson got to NC State, I'm sure that was not wholesome either. So Norm Sloan, you know, stuff followed him. Probably no coincidence. Florida had the football had the same deal. They had Charlie Pell who got in trouble with the NCAA shortly after, before I got there. So both programs were dealing with that sort of thing as I was there, but I, I don't know if that helped me or not. Probably didn't, but um, I, I grew up in Georgia, so I wasn't a Florida fan as a kid. And I go to Florida and went to the school paper from almost day one and was there, there back then there, you, 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 there's a pack of reporters, the news, the school guys were hanging around the, the full-time legit guys uh, at practices and whatnot. And so they would just beat it in your head that you do not root. You know, you're in the press box. You do not cheer for the Gators. They are not your team. And, uh, so I never had a chance to even root for Florida. I never did. 
I mean, I still don't to this day. I don't root for him. And um, it was most crystallized for me as, as unbelievable as this is going to sound. This really happened. I was at the final four. I want to say it was 2001. I was at C. I guess I was at C. No, I was the Charlotte Observer. Duke of Carolina was there. I was there for one of my teams. And Florida was playing, I believe, Michigan State in the other semifinal. And I'm watching the game. And, in the, and because I'm not there to cover that game, I'm there to cover Duke or Carolina, whoever else is there. I'm not really paying attention much to whoever else is in the, the final four. But I'm at the game, sitting courtside, and uh, it dawned on me, like, half of the first half is that I went to one of those schools. Like, it didn't even dawn on me. It occurred to me that I was – I'm a Florida graduate watching my alma mater because I just don't care. I don't – I'm just cold-blooded like that. Do you have rooting interests despite your understanding as a journalist? Or is it more – is it less institutional and more personal story rooting interest? Um, it's a little combination of both. Uh, first of all, I root for people that I like and, and, and I, I don't root against necessarily. I just don't want to pay attention to him if I don't. And I've written a story about this, Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. When he was there, I just couldn't, I couldn't be bothered to cover Notre Dame because, because they're, they're going to win a lot and I don't want to be there to see it. You know, there's a lot of things for me to cover and I'm just not going to go somewhere that turns my stomach. Brian Kelly turns my stomach. Always was at UC and Notre Dame fans see it now, the way he left and just, you know, anyway, so I, I, I don't, I, if I don't like you, I can't, I don't like you. And but I don't like you. There's going to be a reason I might be wrong, but I don't just obscurely, Oh, you don't like the guy because of the way he cuts his hair. No, no. If I don't like you, it's because you've done some bad guy stuff, whether it's NCAA rules, bad guy, criminal, bad guy, or you're just a jerk. And Brian Kelly's never broken rules. I mean, they got in trouble a time or two for some stuff that I'm not sure he you know was orchestrating, but, um, just a bad guy. There's, there's the white collar, bad guy. He's a white collar, bad guy. Anyway, who do I root for? I root for Indiana. And by that, I mean the state I root for, because I want our readers to be happy. And I never thought I was going to be that way. When I got this, this job, I was writing columns at CBS and before that some at Charlotte, but not much, but CBS, I was just writing opinion for 10 years or however long I was there. Um, and I would look at people in other markets, specifically Dan Levitar down in Miami when the big oh, yeah. LeBron Bosch and Dwayne Wade, and I've, I, been, I've been a Dolphins fan since Super Bowl six, so I'm familiar with Lebetard. Talk about the guy who's sharp. Oh, he's the, he is the most talented journalist I've ever seen. Um, maybe not the best writer, although I'm not saying he's not. He's just radio, TV, writing. He all. And I was at the Miami Herald for a couple of years, and we were there together, and I loved him. And you know, he's played with my kid when he was two years old. Um, most talented guy ever. But then when, I, when I'm at CBS, I'm watching him kind of embrace the big three, LeBron and all those, and and sort of attack everybody who would dare attack the big three for coming together. I thought he was a homer and lashed out a time or two. And um, But I like many things in life, I don't know what I don't know. And uh, it's just different when you're in a market. It just, it just is. And so I come here and realized pretty quickly that this is my city. Well, actually, what happened was the Patriots cheated the Colts. Four months after I got here, Deflategate happens. And I just, that just, I have a very strong sense of right and wrong. And again, I could be wrong about stuff, but I've got a strong moral code, I think, when it comes to sports and doing things the right way and the wrong way. And uh, the Patriots cheated. And they didn't just cheat, but they cheated the team that, the, the locker room that I know, and they cheated every fan in this city that roots for the Colts, the Patriots cheated. And the Patriots didn't need to cheat. And for some reason, people can't get this. And you see me like covering my eyes because I don't even, 
I don't understand people that can't understand this this point is it doesn't matter that they won 45 to 16 or 45 to 8. That doesn't matter. What matters is they didn't need to cheat but did anyway. It's, the point is not the Colts would have won. No, the Colts would have lost big either way. But you did it the wrong way, and I hate it. And so that kind of crystallized for me. Like, this is my city. This is, you know, uh, whether this city wants to be mine or not, it is. Anyway, I, I just I, I want all of our teams to do well. Uh, I don't sit there and root for Indiana to beat Notre Dame or Purdue to beat Wisconsin. I don't sit there and thinking it's not, it's, it's, it's much more of a macro sense. The macro sense, I want every team in the state to do very, very well because it's great for the stories. It's great for readers. It's great for business. There's nothing wrong with them doing well. But it, but if people can hear that and, and still understand that I'm not sitting there on pressure road cheering, it's a very nuanced way I go about my, the way I, th- I look at things, but that's how it is. Does winning or losing change how you write in the sense that if Brian Kelly had won against Alabama in the national championship game or had won in his trips to uh, the national semifinals, the national college football playoffs, does winning redeem people you you don't like or loathe or at least look askance at? Or is winning or losing immaterial? It's immaterial. It actually, in, in the way I do my job, it makes it worse. It makes me matter. Case in point, Kelvin Sampson, who uh, cheated at Oklahoma and cheated at IU. Ex- inexplicably was an IU hire. Inex- right. Terrible. Who is the AD? Who is that idiot? Um, Greenspan. Greenspan, Rick Greenspan, Rick. Yeah. Alex Spans, the federal guy, Rick Greenspan. Yeah. yeah. Um, dumbest hire ever. But anyway, um, this year, the final four, the elite eight, well, all of it was here in Indianapolis. And I was there for the region final when Houston was playing somebody, Southern Cal, maybe I forget, but um, I was there to watch Houston go to the final four. And I was there to watch Kelvin Sampson go to the final four. And it happened to be the same day IU hired Mike Woodson, the same day, and officially, and introduced him that day, I think. So it was galling to me, galling to me that IU is on their third coach, fourth, whatever, since Kelvin left a crater in 06 or whatever year he left. Galling to me that that guy who, who ruined the state's basketball flagship university for a long time is in our state going to the final four that made it worse. So you asked, does it redeem things? No, it makes me matter. And I, I ripped him that night. I, I crushed him as hard as I could because I don't like, and then of course that idiot goes on the court afterwards and tells CBS, whoever's t- analyzing the game is that I'm a good, I know that my parents raised a good person and they say that good things happen to good people. And I remember thinking this, why are you telling us you're a good person? Only people that know they're not good people voluntarily say I'm a good person. <laughs> not. Did winning redeem Coach Bobby Knight? Winning gave him a, a, a lot of protection. You know, if, if Bob Knight had just pick any four-year period of his career, and he had a couple instances, I'm sure, if in those four years, if they happened in a vacuum, if in those four years he was going 17 and 16 every year and going to the NIT at IU, he'd have been run out of here and everybody would have hated him. Like, can you believe he did that? But people forgive winners. And so, you know, did it redeem him? It, it, it insulated him. You know, not for me. I wasn't here then, but 
absolutely insulated him. It's it's very easy to say, but he doesn't cheat and he graduates kids. And, you know, when you win, you look for the reasons to like a guy and there were reasons to like him. There were. Yeah. Did he even need redeemed? Huh? Did he even need redeemed? Like, is that is that a pejorative way to ask the question, I guess, as I'm sitting here pondering my own question is, is, is all the things that he did that were so upright. Um, it's not a zero sum game, right? So Belichick winning six Super Bowls that doesn't redeem deflate gate or his spying or the fact, you know, he's, he's probably going to break Don Shula's all time NFL wins record. And Shula famously referred to him as Bella cheat. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the winning, what it does is it insulates you with your with your market. Uh, I think the rest of the country will look at Belichick and see him for what he is. Um, and I think around the country, people look at Bob Knight one way. And, and then in this state, they look at him a different way. And that's just that's the way it is with that's the way it is with sports, with politics. Our guy is OK because he's our guy if he's doing well. Now, if, if your guy is the governor of whatever state and he's not doing well, then your guy's not okay. But if your guy is a governor or a coach or a president, whatever, and he and he's doing things you like, then you will forgive. We will forgive everything if he's a our guy and b good at his job. That's just that is the human condition, and it pisses me off. And I I rail against that and 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 don't like it. I don't like it at all. For, for when I was at CBS, when I was even here. I don't like the fact that our guy, whoever our guy is, gets a free pass because he's our guy. No, that's not the, that's not it's not right. I don't care if he's our guy or not. I don't care if he's good at his job or not. A bad guy is a bad guy, period. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC. The Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is award-winning Indianapolis star sports columnist Greg Doyle. Greg, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Oh, wow. I got an easy answer for this one, Um, and I'm sure I can come up with more. But I really like Mitch Daniels. Um, really, really like him. And I really like actually Governor Holcomb. And if you read me a lot, um, especially when I write about social issues, you, you probably think correctly that I vote Democrat, and I, I typically do. Um, but when, there's a, when a Republican comes along that I can believe in, uh, that's cause that's a high bar for me to believe in you. If you're a Republican, it just is. I'm just, that's, you know, I grew up the way I grew up and make no apologies for who raised me and how he raised me. But, um, Mitch Daniels could have been my president. Governor Holcomb is my governor. And, uh, I, I really, I really, it's, I mean, it's, I'm not going to tell you, yeah, this Democrat or that Democrat, why I vote that way. They're, they're, those are my, that's my team. And so they're not perfect, but that's my team. When you're on the other team and I still really, really, really like you. Uh, that's for me, that's a hard, that's a high bar. So those two guys hit that bar. Mr. Doyle has worked at various outlets in his journalistic career, reading through some of your columns and some of your biographies, it seems, and I'm going to guess here, but you push back, please, that, that you have a special affinity for college basketball. 
Is that true? And what is the state of the current game? Um, well, it's, I've covered college basketball more than anything else. Um, I don't want to quibble about it. Do I have a special affinity for it? You know, I'm in Indiana and college basketball is, <laughs> so I enjoy it. What I enjoy is um, any sport where I can actually see the emotion happening right before my eyes. And in basketball, it lets you see it because they're not wearing helmets and, and you can, in the old days on press row, you were right there to see it. You know, baseball from the press box, you might as well be watching it on TV. It's, you can't really, there's no emotion there from the press box. Football, there's no emotion at all from the press box. They're all, you can't see their faces. So anyway, I, I like that part about basketball. What is the state of the game? Um, well, it's dirty as hell. I mean, it's still dirty. Will Wade is still coaching at LSU. So it's clearly haven't been cleaned up yet. And now, now the NCAA is terrified and on the run and they're redoing their constitution that happened last week. Um, they're terrified. They, all those people that make a lot of money overlooking the white river, they, they want to keep those jobs. And the way you cannot keep your job is the NCAA breaks apart because the big schools break away from you. And so if the NCAA comes down too hard on LSU or any of these schools that were, that were caught by the FBI, not just, not just linked to caught, by the FBI on wiretaps caught none of them been crushed yet. And I don't know if they will be because NCAA knows that if we crush too many of these schools, they're all going to break away and they're going to keep all that college football money for themselves. They're going to keep all that March madness money as much as they can for themselves. And NCAA will be out of business. So college basketball is, it's why I so appreciate Matt Painter. It's why I so and, and, and why Brad Stevens was so appreciated and, and why Bob Knight can be so appreciated for the way he did his job, you know, cleanly is that, you know, when, when someone is in that, it, it, it's like being in the steroid area in baseball, when you know that everybody is cheating and you refuse to do it, and you know you're actually swimming upstream just to do it the right way, that's hard. And I'm not sure I could have done it that way if I'd been a pro baseball player. And the guy in my locker next to me and locker next to me, those guys are cheating and I'm in AAA and I'm trying to get to the big leagues. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll never know what I would have done. The fact that I don't know probably is the answer. means I probably would have. Um, so anyway, when you see a guy like Matt Painter do what he's doing for 20 years and you know, and it's hard to say, you know, this guy doesn't cheat, you know, that guy doesn't cheat. It's hard to say that and really know, but I've paid attention to college basketball for a long, long time. I know he's clean and that's really damn impressive. This may be heresy. As we sit here in the state of Indiana, but on your list of college basketball cheaters, would you place coach John Wooden? Um, what we know about Wooden at UCLA, what we know about the booster that was Sam something or other. Sam Gilbert. Jer Sam Gilbert. Jerry Tarkanian called Sam Gilbert the most important stone in Wooden's pyramid of success. I mean, Sam Gilbert has been linked to buying a lot of players for John Wooden. And the thing is, is that was, if it happened, that was 50 years ago. And I'm not enough of an expert on, on it to know that without a doubt it did happen. But I will say this, if it did happen, if what's out there about Sam Gilbert, if it's true, then he absolutely cheated. Then even if, cause you get, you got to know, you, you can't not know you, you can't, you can't tell your players and, understand how quickly they tie their shoes. And I mean, you can't know every little detail 
and then not know that they've been paid off. You just can't, you don't want to know. And so you make it clear that no one will ever catch you knowing, but you have to know. So if Sam, I hate to say if, because I just don't know. I don't know that he cheated. I don't know that Gilbert did all that, but there's a lot of smoke there. If there's any fire at all, then yeah, he's a cheater. Absolutely. Knight famously said something along the same lines that, that, that wooden and recruiting was, there was a lot of crookedness, criminality there. He said it in an interview and it caused a bit of a, a, he was being interviewed by Joe Buck and, and made the, made that claim. And it was interesting coming from Knight because Knight and wooden have had kind of a, had since Wooden's past a, a kind of a tortured friendship slash relationship, maybe maybe based on this issue. Yeah, Knight Knight had a Knight had a very interesting moral code. Um, in that he was mostly, I mean, ninety nine point nine nine eight percent above board, and, and was above. I mean, he was hundred percent above board. He was, but and this is back when I was at CBS. I wrote about there was some, there's some twin brothers out West in LA called the, the plumps. Um, I think it's the, or pumps, pump, pump, Dana pump and Dana and somebody else pump. Um, and they ran this AAU outfit in California. They were, they were the AAU people in California. And this is back when AAU basketball, you know, there was just stuff going on and they were never found guilty of anything, but they, they had, they controlled all these players. They controlled them all. And they also were buying Final Four tickets or getting them given to them by coaches. And just Google my name and pump or Google it, Google pump and Final Four tickets. They had this business on the side where they were getting Final Four tickets from coaches all over the country. And then using those, they had a travel agency and using those to make a ton of money on these great tickets. Every year at the Final Four, they were being given for free from coaches with the unspoken thing is that if I give you my tickets, I'm going to be in the game for your players. And also leaving it unspoken that if I don't give you my tickets, I can kiss the idea of getting your players goodbye. I mean, it was very clearly, I mean, very clear. Like when I say I'm like Sam Gilbert, I'm not sure about, you know, I just don't know. I know about the pumps. I know. And, but they were so powerful and they had so many coaches in their pocket that you couldn't, you couldn't get anybody to speak out about them. So I'm at CBS in 07 or 08. And I'm thinking, what's the one coach in America that hates cheating enough and doesn't need anybody's help? that will talk to me about the pumps. And I put a message into Bob Knight. I've never told this story, so here you go. Um, he wouldn't call me back. Wouldn't call me back. And which pissed me off. Like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to clean up the game that you, you know, clean with. Help me here. Would not call me back. The next year, um, I'm because the pumps were on my list. You know, I want to write about these guys. And I, I, I eventually did a time or two, but They've got this their annual retreat. The pumps have the annual retreat where all the coaches come in. All the coaches who give them their Final Four tickets come in and they spend a couple of days in California doing whatever it is you do. And the guest speaker of that retreat was the pumps' good friend, Bob Knight. And I saw that and thought, no, 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 you cannot have it both ways. You you cannot be Mister. And he was clean. But how can you be so clean and, and be mad at John Wooden and, and say all the things, you you know, be all these things, and yet you're okay with the pumps? When you know they control all the talent out West, you know it? No, no, no. So that's why I say Bob Knight's moral compass to me is very interesting. 
you mentioned a few minutes ago about rooting. Matt Painter and Purdue make it to the NCAA title game. You rooting? No, uh-uh. No. And if they make it to the title game, I hope they're playing IU. You know, I, I want I want all of our teams to do great because then I can't lose. Um, but no, if they in the moment I won't root, but when it's when it's all said and done, I guess, you know, ultimately um we root for ourselves in this business. You root for stories, you root for, you know, and if you're covering the Marlins, for example, as I did a long time ago, it doesn't do me good for the Marlins to go 75 and 87. That doesn't do me any good. For the Marlins to go to the World Series, that does me a lot of good. So you want that. You know, it doesn't mean you're rooting. There's a there's a I don't even think it's a fine line. There's a there's a clear difference between what you want for your professional advancement and rooting for the team. It's just two different things. So do I want Purdue in the final championship game? Absolutely. Do I, I guess, do I want them to win? Uh, yeah, that'd be great for me and this state, but do I want them to play IU <laughs> even better? So yeah, I, I hope I'm clear about that, that I want the teams around here to do very, very well because it's good for me, but it's good for all of us. And I, I love this state. The state's taken me in with some, with some exceptions, but so I want people here to be happy. And you're happy when your teams are winning. I like that. What's your number one all-time favorite sports movie? Oh, Hoosiers. No question about it. No question about it. And uh, and one of the things that's great about this job um, is that because Indiana is it's like a it's like a big small town or whatever. Um, and when you have a job like like I have, like uh, just whoever's got this job, it happens to be me you get to bump into people and talk to people. Like I, I know Angelo Pizzo now. I know him because of the job I have. And I don't, he's the producer, obviously. And David Anspaugh, the director, I know David Anspaugh. I've had coffee with David Anspaugh in the last six months. Um, Angelo Pizzo invited me to a, a pre-screening of Everybody's All-American. I was there, saw it before anybody else. So it's amazing. But, but I would have said that, I would have said that movie, I would have said that eight years ago before I step foot in the state, that's, that's the best movie ever. When it comes to sports journalism in general, er, journalism, I do public relations for a living. So cultivating strong relationships with reporters and editors and producers is an important part of what I do as I try to deliver for my clients as best I can. But in the sports journalism world, clearly relationships with athletes are formed some closer than others, but they happen. How difficult is it? Let me ask it a different way. How important is it to forge those relationships? How difficult is it then to be critical after those relationships have been formed? Because we have seen where journalists and sports figures fall out. Yeah. And you know, you, you ask somebody else this and, if they would tell you the truth, they'd tell you something different where I'm going to tell you. Um, how critical is it? It's not at all to me, not any. And in fact, I, for the most part, it's not in my best interest to have a good relationship with Carson Wentz, Andrew Luck. It's not in my best interest. And I did have a good one with Andrew Luck. I did. Um, Carson, but, not so much. Huh? Carson, not so much. <laughs> yeah, not, not so much Carson. Um, but then again, I, you know, the locker room has been closed. You get him in press conference settings. I'm not, I haven't been in the locker room with Carson Wentz because nobody has in the media They you can't get in there. Right. Cause of COVID. Um, 
Philip Rivers. Okay, Philip Rivers. I covered him at NC State when Archie Miller was playing basketball. Philip Rivers is their quarterback, and I'm the Charlotte hmm. NC State beat writer. So I thought it was great when Rivers came here, and and he remembered me. Um, and I, he and I had a, we had a couple talks and a couple stories I wrote about you know me and Phil going back and mainly about Phil, but I'd sprinkle in a little bit because. You know, people say, don't write about you. Well, you know, my job is a little bit different, A, but my job is to is to let you behind the ropes a little bit. And guess who's been behind the ropes? Me. So come with me. Here's what it looked like. Anyway, Philip had a couple bad games early on, and I had to go after him and didn't love having to do it, but but did it because otherwise, I you know, that's just how it's going to be. So ultimately, these people aren't going to give me scoops. They're not. That, that's what a lot of writers are afraid of is, if I rip this guy or that guy, they're not going to tell me. They don't tell you anyway. They're okay. The only scoops that come out are coming out from agents and they're coming out th- from Adam Schefter. Cause that's all wash my, let me wash your hand. You wash my hand, watch your back, whatever that analogy is. There are no scoops, not really. And there certainly are no scoops worth being in bed with somebody and not writing the truth. So I do, however, cross over all the time and and become friends with a lot of people that I write, like Joey Brunk. I love that young man. Joey Brunk, love him. And whenever I, you would play um, Butler too, when he's at Butler, I would see him before the game and I'd, I'd hug him on the court, would hug him. And uh, th- there's players like that. I've done that with before um, at Purdue. I'd seek out Carson Edwards. I would seek out Vin- Vince, Vince Edwards. Are they both Edwards? Am I having a brain brain freezer? Anyway, um, PJ Thompson at Purdue. There are some kids, young men that I just really like, 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 like Butler, Andrew Kravis, because I know his I knew his dad a little bit. Um, anyway, so I, I I get close with some players because I like them, but I also know it's kind of safe. College players is different. I'm not gonna go after you if you're a college player. For the most part, I'm not ripping you. You're a college kid. I might, you know, critique you in a game and he played this way, but I'm not gonna like Carson Wentz gets different treatment for me than the quarterback at IU because one of them's a 30 year old making a hundred million dollars. One of them's a college kid. And that's just right. the way it's going to be. You actually anticipated my very next question, which was, it's not a matter of pulling punches. It's a matter of putting their, their status as people in the mix. When you write about them, either they have disadvantaged circumstances growing up or some sort of personal tragedy or their pro versus college. Um, how important is it? to you to forge that connection where you can get beyond just what happens on the field. You write a lot about what doesn't happen on the field or court. Yeah. Well, most of the stuff that I write about, um, if you're talking about big schools, big teams, big franchises, it's going to be things that I see myself or maybe hear about somewhere else, but the players themselves aren't the ones telling me. They're not going to tell me stuff like that. They're not going to tell many of us stuff like that. So um, I try to write as much as I can about stuff off the court, off the field, but I'm not getting it from the players. So it doesn't matter. But if, if I did, but there's a kid, uh, Luke Brown, he's at Ball State now. Um, he's a freshman at Ball State basketball player. He, he played at uh, Blackford for four years, and I went to Blackford every year to watch him play and wrote about him every year and written a lot, <laughs> a lot about him and, and need to stop now. But um, – I know a lot about that guy's story because I got to know him and the family very well. But for the most part, I do want to keep a little little distance. I don't want to 
I don't want to be friends, friends, friends with the players that are really good that I'll be writing about a lot because it's just very, very awkward. And so what's his story? Huh? Forgive me. Forgive me. What's his story? Tell the Leaders and Legends podcast audience his story. Well, in a, in a nutshell, he's he's the most exciting player our state's ever produced in basketball. Not the best, no, no, not not the best, but he's the number three or four all time scoring leader in the state, up there with Damon Bailey and a few others. He's also in the top five or ten in assists, and played the game with. I mean, you'd have to if you saw him, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, I mean, he was like a little miniature Pete Maravich, just fun, fun, passionate, zeal, loved it. He also had OCD, like crippling OCD, and turned the OCD in sixth or seventh grade. It, it kind of drives him to greatness. Like his OCD makes him work out in ways that no one else wants to do. Um, but he's got OCD. It's other things too. You know, like the there's you know I have some of it myself. So it's not a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying OCD is has sure. been a good thing for him, but he has harnessed that in some some way and it drives him to greatness. And he's just so humble. He does so many things. I love when people do things off the field, off the court, like in the in the community, and no one knows, or I find out, or I know, but I find out because someone else told me there was not a press release. There wasn't a media photo opportunity. It was just mm-hmm. my driver was going to go off. I love it when I find out organically that somebody's a great kid. And I found out organically about Luke Brown so many times, heard organically so many times what a great kid he was, things he's done, just – just great stuff. So that's who I like as athletes. Like, you know, Carson Wentz has got his army of one or audience of one. He wear, always wears his hat. He's always got his, he's always got his uh, biblical verse somewhere. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. I, I want to, I, what I want to do is I want to hear that behind the scenes when nobody was watching you, you, you help someone change their tire. You know, Kenny Moore is famous Colts cornerback. Famous for doing great stuff that no one knows about it until somehow it leaks. And then everybody knows about it, but it wasn't his goal. Like he does great stuff and it word, word gets around just because you can't keep these great secrets, but he wants no part of it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He just does it because he's a good young man. That's those are the people I root for the most. Speaking of people you love before we started recording, we were having a brief conversation and you mentioned your love of Tom Coverdale. <laughs> I think I said I was obsessed with him back in the day. Um, I was there for that Final Four run with Mike Davis. I was there at CBS writing about him, unless I was at Charlotte Observer. In any event, I was there at the Final Four. You know, Duke, I think Duke played that IU team, so maybe that's why I was there. But anyway, Coverdale, yeah, I was at the Charlotte Observer back then. And Duke, Duke lost famously. Huh? Duke lost famously as the number one seed. Oh, and Matt AJ Moy blocking uh, Carlos Boozer's dunk attempt but tom coverdale was former indiana mr basketball was point guard on that iu final four team and a previous guest on the leaders and legends podcast but yes it's a magical run for sure and he was so interesting to look at you know just this red head with these thick eyebrows and this looked like a football player on the court um and i i watched him warm up and 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 i've watched a lot of basketball and uh, you know and and his shot was so pure, like he consistently warming warming up now. He would shoot maybe because maybe it was the arc on his shot. I don't know, but he would shoot three pointers 
And the net almost wouldn't move because it would come in at such an angle and it would be so perfectly in the middle that it almost didn't even touch the net, which is mathematically not possible. The ball is bigger than the net, but it was like watching a raindrop fall into a bucket. I mean, it was, I was obsessed with the guy, what the way he shot, the way he played, the way his facial expression never changed. The fact that a six foot two, 210 pound redhead is out there doing what he's doing. I just <laughs> thought the most interesting man alive there for about a year. <laughs> and he famously, I asked him this question. Uh, he was at the, uh, I think there was the, see, was it the 500 or the 500 festival parade or something like that. And, um, there was a time for about a week where Tom Coverdale had the most uh, famous sprained ankle in the, in the United States. Remember he sprained his ankle for the final four and Oh yes, for sure. Yeah. And some guy strolled by one time at, and I think it was the parade, but forgive me, Tom, if I get it wrong, but I knew it was something related to the 500. This guy strolled past him and said, Hey Tom, how's your ankle? And that man was Donald Trump. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, we have a okay, few more minutes. Probably, and, and Go ahead. Probably back then a Democrat. <laughs> I think he was an opportunist and a capitalist at all times, for sure. Uh, a few more minutes left with Greg Doyle, award-winning sports columnist for the Indianapolis Star. Um, how do you fix and do they need fixed the Indiana Pacers? Um. The only way they're ever going to get a great talent, a great talent, a Giannis kind of talent is to either get lucky in the draft. And by lucky, the Bucs got lucky. Like no one knew. I mean, the Bucs drafted him, so they get credit for drafting him. But nobody knew what Giannis was. If everybody knew, he wouldn't have been there for the Bucs at number 10 overall or wherever he was. The, the Pacers are going to have to either get lucky in the draft or lose so badly that they don't have to get lucky because they're picking second. Um, cause right now there's treading water and they're going to keep, keep, of course this year they're sinking, but Herb Simon is 86, seven, eight, and doesn't want to rebuild. And, you know, he's at the age where he doesn't, I mean, I don't think he's saying it like this and I don't want to be crass, but I mean, he's 88, you know, how much longer does he have? He doesn't want to rebuild. He wants to win as much as he can and watch it happen. So the Pacers are in a tough spot right now, but but all these injuries are happening in such a way that they might have no choice but to be in the lottery and maybe get – that's how you fix them. you got to get lucky. you got to win the lottery and win the lottery in a year when LeBron is there to be drafted, not when Michael Olo-Candy is there to get drafted. How do you fix, or do they need fixed, the Indianapolis Colts? Well, the NFL is a quarterback league. It, you're, if your quarterback is great – your team has a chance no matter what else is going on defense can stink everything if your quarterback is great and the he has enough healthy players around him to throw it to you've got a chance so the colts they you know andrew luck's retirement just screwed them so badly and i realize it's been three or four years but they 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 thought they had – I mean, it screwed them that one year. They thought they had a fix with maybe Phillip Rivers, and then, he, and then he up and retires after one year. And so they're, they've been scrambling ever since. They, they've never yet just sunk their teeth into a guy and said, this is our guy. They think Wentz might be their guy, but he's not. So I, how do you fix the – well, it starts with the quarterback. Carson Wentz has to go. That You start there. I don't know how they find his replacement. You know, I, I don't know. They don't have a first-round draft pick. They don't have a lot of assets to trade. I don't know. You know, if it was easy, if someone like me knew, the Colts would do it. So I don't know how to fix them, um, but I just know that when you have a when you have a cavity, you remove it. So Carson Wentz has to go. 
before you'd come to the Indianapolis Star, had you been to, attended, or covered the Indianapolis 500? And what was it like the first time you witnessed the race in its full glory? No, I've never been to the 500. The, the only auto racing I'd ever been to was the uh, Gator Nationals Hot Rod Association. They would come to Gainesville every year, so I would go to that and hated it. You know, I, it was too loud and just didn't like it um, and thought I was going to hate the 500. Knew I had to do it, but I thought I was going to hate it. But like with a lot of things, you know, I, I like things that people are – rabbit about and i like things that people are passionate about and the 500 you know that race generates that i don't think that whatever happens in laguna or whatever you know i'm not sure going on anywhere else but once a year indycar is huge and and that once is not the grand prix but the 500 it's huge and it matters and half a million people come here and 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 so i i've i've Fallen for it, you know. My I, my first 500 might have been my first, might have been my second. But I got in the golf cart with Will Power the year he lost to I think Juan Pablo Montoya. I think beat him to the checkered flag, and they were teammates. I think that's what happened. It's been a long, long time. But I got in the golf cart with with Will Power and rode back talking to him all the way back to his uh, motorhome. So the access is unbelievable. So I I've I am a big Indy 500 guy surprisingly based on what I thought it was going to be, but I, I enjoy it very much. If you've written in a lot of different cities, Indianapolis, I think has a significant amount of sports talent and not on the field or the court or the diamond, whether it's Mark miles or Allison Melangdon or Doug Bowles or Rick Fusen or um, Pete Ward, Ryan Vaughn, from the sports corp and the list goes on and on you get to talk to these people. What, what do you think makes Indianapolis so special and, and why would, what is your opinion of Mike Greenberg from ESPN saying Indianapolis is the best big game city in the country? Well, he, I mean, he's right about that. It's and, and people in the media, national media, most, I mean, tend to know that we know that I knew that when I was at CBS, it's one of the reasons I wanted this job when it came open, I didn't, didn't think I was going to want it. But when I heard that Kravitz was leaving, my first thought was, I hope they call me. And which my second thought was who just thought that Greg, you, you, call you? cause I, I didn't see that coming, but um, anyway, the, what they talk about around here um, behind the scenes and, and, and not privately, but just kind of, they talk about the special sauce. Like what is Indianapolis's Indiana? What is the special sauce? And the special sauce is, and this sounds like a, like I'm doing, you know, PR for the city or whatever, but it's just the way it is, is that, that um, all the people that you mentioned and so many more come together for the good of our state and our city. And they do what it takes to get these great events and to find these volunteers and to work all these great hours. And then we're just so lucky to have a downtown that's built the way it's built. And that was built whether it was lucky or with with uh, for, with forethought to have all these arenas and hotels nearby with walking distance and just it's just perfect it's beautiful and and so we really have all these things in in place to have this be the greatest big event sports city in America and and it is you know I was at the Super Bowl at New York when it was there seven or eight nine years ago New Jersey it may have been but all the festivities were held in New York 
and you couldn't even tell there was a game in town. I mean, it's just that city's so big that, I mean, they didn't care. It's not that big a deal. It would be a big deal if you were at the football game. There'd be 80,000 people there, but two miles away, no one cares. When Indianapolis has something big going on, you know it. You know it from the moment you get to the airport to the moment you leave. It's just, it's it's remarkable. And it's not just the big names that you mentioned, but it's all this army of volunteers, the people that do it behind the scenes that that aren't getting thanked for it publicly. And there's too many of them anyway to thank them, but they just do it because they they want our city to be put on a great show. It's it's amazing. Susan Boffman, Andy Mallon, Michael Browning, Chris Gall, Leonard Hoops. You're right. You just, it would be all day. To, all day. To go through the list. Um, we've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Indianapolis star columnist, Greg Doyle, are you ready? Yep. What was your first job? Uh, scooping dog poop and uh, at, a, at a veterinarian at age 16. Walking dogs and cleaning the cages. <laughs> Sorry. What was your first concert? Um, probably uh, Stevie Wonder here in Indianapolis about five years ago. Not a concert fan? Eh, I, not really. No, I, I, I'm not. Listen, I, my thought, my thing about having fun is if I'm having fun, I'm probably not having a good time. I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big partier. I'm not a big concert guy. No, I, I play Sudoku. That's my fun. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk, the greatest book of all time. And I've got about 15 books that I read about once a year. And uh, that's that's on the list. That's first on the list. Books two through seven were probably written by Pat Conroy. Book number one is Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? And please give us two events. A sporting event and a non-sporting event. Um, non-sporting event. Are you talking about going back in history? You mean something that's already happened? Witness anything in history. Be there as it happens. The Big Bang. I want to know how we came to be. I want to know. I want to know how he happened because there was no rib taken out of Eve. There, that that didn't happen. I want to know how how did I get here? How did I get here? And so I don't know how you can see the Big Bang because I, I suspect there was nothing anywhere. And I don't even know. That blows my mind. How is there nothing anywhere? And then all of a sudden there's this. So I don't know what's more blasphemous, your comments about uh, Eve's rib or your comments about Assembly Hall. I mean, listen, I guess one thing unites both those stories. And everybody loves everybody loves a good fiction story. We all we, we all love a good fiction. OK, and I don't know what else to tell you. But, but, what about a sporting event that you'd like to witness? Be there to cover it as a journalist. You know, honestly, this the best. This is the way I can answer that question. Is I don't think like that. The USA Today, the sports editor of USA Today, which is not you know they own the Star and all this. That came to Indianapolis a couple years ago because he was told that the only way this is going to happen is if you come come to Indy and ask me. He wanted me to go to the um, Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, or no, no, the the Olympics in uh, Tokyo, the Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah. Um, so he came and took me to uh, the steakhouse and said, will you go? We would like you to go to the. And I said, no, I, don't, are you, I said, well, I, I said, are you are you telling me to go or are you asking me? He said, I'm asking you. And I said, then I don't want to go. And uh, and he just was quiet. And I said, how many people in the country 
And then he, he finished my sentence for me. He goes, how many people in the country would give me the answer that you just gave me? And I nodded and he goes, one, and I'm sitting across from him. So I just don't, I can't even answer that question. I don't know. I don't, I don't dream of things like that. The last question is if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Obama. He's been the most popular answer. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Not a, I'm not a, a fan boy. I'm not a, you know, people don't impress me. I mean, regular people do Kenny Moore, the stuff he does that impresses me. Tyler Trent impressed me. You know, people impress sure. me doing things. Tom Brady doesn't impress me. Okay. Don't, don't impress me. And so I, that, that's why it's easy for me to rip people that are like Carson Lentz. You don't impress me at all. Like if I was going to list the, the thousand people that impress me the most in this world that I know, if I know a thousand and he's one of those thousand, he don't make the list. I'm literally having nobody before I'm putting Carson Wentz because he don't impress me at all. Um, Obama impresses me greatly. Like I, I want to meet him. I want to find out that he has read me. I want someone to tell me, even if you lie to me, tell me, Hey, Obama likes you. Uh, that would, that would make me beyond happy. Cause that, that guy impresses me. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Indianapolis star sports columnist, Greg Doyle. He packs a mean punch and he writes a mean column. And we're very grateful for your time today. Love the conversation. Thank you for being so forthright. Really enjoyed it. All right, Robert. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.